Jesus is what it's all about. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles. We're going to look at uh, John chapter 4 again. We looked at it a few weeks ago. And this is the encounter of Jesus with the woman at the well. And uh, there are many, many, many uh, lessons we can pull from this text. I just want to pull a few. Um, so if I don't pull your favorite, uh, I'm sorry. But you only have so much time this morning. Um, but we'll look at uh, John 4, starting in verse 5. It reads, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you... Being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you do not, what, excuse me, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. For the hour is coming and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat 
of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say, There are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes, and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Uh, We're going to look at uh, several things this morning. One is... uh, give you a basic outline, the, what I would call the setting or the opportunity. Secondly, we want to look at the persons involved in the story. And then thirdly, we're going to um, summarize our lessons from this passage. First, the setting or the opportunity. The setting here is the well of Jacob and the weariness of Jesus. The well of Jacob and the weariness of Jesus. The, there, there's a long tradition in the Bible about the importance of wells. And if you read the Old Testament, you will see how often wells are mentioned. And the well of Jacob was important in the history of the Jewish people. A well was a social gathering place. It was not just a place to go get water. It was that, but it was also a place where people might socialize. People might hang out. Even teenagers would hang out at the well. So I, I was thinking, what today is like a well? I mean, we don't, I guess there's wells around here, but I, I haven't been to the well lately. Anybody here been to the well? <laughs> so it's like, what's, what's, what's the, what is the, the well? You know, what, is, it, is it the grocery store? Well, people don't really hang out there. It's like, well, maybe it's kind of like a gas station. You, know, you go to the well, get water. You go to the gas, gas station and get gas, right? But people don't hang out there. So it's kind of a combination of a place to, to get a necessity, but also a place where you might transact a little uh, business or, or just meet people and hang out for a while. And maybe the closest parallel would be a coffee shop. I mean, isn't coffee a necessity? Right? <clears throat> so you have to go to that well in the morning, right? <laughs> Got to go to the well and get your, get your caffeine, and so other people hang out there. I mean, some people just drive through. They grab their, their bucket full of uh, water and take off. Others hang and and loiter around and and sit and talk. So it was kind of a social place. Um, But what we see here is that Jesus um, takes advantage of an opportunity in what we would call an everyday situation. Everyday situation. The well is like a coffee shop. It's, it could be like a grocery store. It could be like the gym. It could be like your work. Um, it could be like many places where you run into people in everyday life. And I stress the word everyday life. Um, you know, as I was meditating on this passage, and, 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 and this will come out further as, as we talk this morning, but the, 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 when you read the Gospels, well, really when you read any narrative in Scripture, because it's in the Bible, we, we elevate it to an importance in our thinking, which we should, because it's Scripture, right? 
But if you actually think back to when the event is going on, many of the events narrated in Scripture are very mundane, trivial events. Right? I mean, here's Jesus. He's not on a, he's not on a crusade. This is not a revival meeting. This is not an evangelistic campaign. Jesus got tired and thirsty. How, how much more mundane can things get, right? So it is really like going to Starbucks when you're just like, man, I really need a jolt of caffeine. That's the situation. An everyday situation, a common situation, a mundane situation. And yet this is the situation where Jesus is seeking the lost, okay? In the mundane, everyday situation. So there are opportunities for us to share our faith in everyday situations, whether it's the coffee shop, the gym, the grocery store, the restaurant, the office, many places where we go. We don't need to wait until we orchestrate an event. You know what I'm saying? And we Christians, and I'm not against big events. Matter of fact, we're honored to have Rob and his wife here, and he does large events in Africa, reaches thousands and thousands of people. So we're we're all for that. We're all for that. As Paul said, Regardless of, of why people preach, I'm glad Jesus is preached. Regardless of how people preach, I'm glad Jesus is preached. But I believe that often we Americans are so conditioned for the event that we miss God working in everyday life. Right? So, so we, you have to develop a campaign. You have to have a strategy. You have to have a big event. And then maybe somebody will share their faith. Jesus is just thirsty. That's all. Everyday life. Common need. So the opportunities really surround us everywhere. Second observation on the situation is that often opportunities are the result of our difficulties. Let me say it again. Opportunities are the result of our difficulties. Jesus was at the well because he was thirsty and tired. He was there in weakness. In weakness. So his weakness became the opportunity to witness. So your difficulty... In God's providence, and this, this is the, one of the beauties of these kinds of texts, is you see God working in everyday things. In, in God's providence, your difficulty can lead to someone else's delivery. Your complaint can lead to their conversion. Your hassle can lead to their heaven. You get a flat tire, you're on the side of the road. Somebody pulls over to help. Maybe. Maybe God gave you a flat tire because he wanted this soul to hear the gospel. You mean God is really alive? God really works in everyday life? God can work in my adversity and difficulty? Oh, yes, he can. 
And in this situation, not only was it an everyday situation, Jesus was the one who was in weakness. Jesus was the one in need. And of course, we see further this illustrates a very common principle in Scripture, and that is that God works strength in weakness. Jesus was weary, yet he witnessed with power. Because the word of God says, or, or should I say the Lord himself says, that in weakness, my strength is made perfect or complete. In weakness. How often do we think, well, when I get my act together, then I can be a witness for Christ. Right? When I, when I get this problem solved, then I can share Christ. When I read one more book, well, then I can share Christ. When I learn a little more, then I can share Christ. Jesus was tired, Jesus was weary, and Jesus preached the gospel with power. Because in our weakness, God is strong. So if you're waiting for the, the, this, this point in the Christian life where, where you are really uh, living in paradise, if you're waiting for that moment of, of, of a constant extraordinary beatific vision daily before you will share the gospel, then you will never share the gospel. You just won't. Because life has its ups and its downs. Your spiritual life will have ups and downs. You'll have good days and bad days. And Jesus, from a human point of view, was having a bad day. It was on the bad day that God was working. Get it? Hearing it? The bad day. God was working his strength through weakness. Now let's take a few moments to look at a little more at, at the, the persons involved here in this uh, narrative. First you have the Samaritan woman. <clears throat> um, when you read the text, she, she's surprised that Jesus is talking to her, Right? Well, probably for two reasons. One, she was a Samaritan, and secondly, she was a woman. Now, let me clarify both of those. The, the, because of the Assyrian captivity, the, I won't go, never mind, I won't go into all that. The Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. Matter of fact, that's putting it mildly. It's fair to say that the Jews, by and large, hated the Samaritans because they were traitors. They were assimilated, they were Jews of Jew, Jewish stock, but they intermarried with Gentiles. So they were worse than just a, an unbeliever, they were traitors, you hear what I'm saying? They were apostates. So the Jews hated the Samaritans, and they had no dealings with them. And the, rabbi, and the rabbis taught the Jewish people, you, you could not drink from a cup that a Samaritan touched, you couldn't eat from a plate that they had touched, you had no dealings with a Samaritan. So what Jesus did here by talking with this woman was revolutionary in terms of the, the racial hatred. Um, much like things used to be in America where you had a, a black restroom and a white restroom or a, or a black restaurant and a white restaurant. That kind of segregation was, was happening here in uh, Jesus' day against the Samaritans. But also, uh, men were not commonly... Um, inclined to speak with women they didn't know, especially. Um, 
So this woman, as we read the narrative, we find out that she's a Samaritan, so she's of a despised race. And then we find out that she's had multiple husbands. And there's a couple ways to read that. One way to read it is, well, this woman was a loose woman. And some commentators have read it that way. But the other way to read it is this woman has been taken advantage of by men. Okay? And what I mean by that is, is when you read Scripture, in the Old Testament, there are, are very clear regulations regarding divorce, and those regulations were designed to protect the woman. Okay? Because what, what was happening then is actually happening now in certain Middle Eastern countries where a Muslim man can marry a woman have relations with her, and then divorce her all in the same day. And we, we even know, we, I've read accounts where, where the, the, the ISIS fighters will uh, take women captive, Christian, Yazidi, uh, even some Muslim, take them captive, marry the, marry the woman or even the girl, have relations with her, and when he's done, divorce her, all within a couple hours. So to say that she had five husbands may have meant she was loose, but it may have meant she was a woman who had been taken advantage of. And after being used like that, she was probably not a very desirable woman in the eyes of a typical Jewish male or, or a Samaritan man. So we have here a woman who, from one perspective, was just a normal person. When, when we read the narrative, she wasn't a famous woman, a rich woman. There was nothing special about her. She's just a normal person. But I think also she was a broken person. Now, we're all broken. All, all people are broken to different degrees. But I think the mention of her five marriages is an indication that this woman was a broken person, right? And clearly, one of the things we learn from this is that God cares about broken people. God cares about little people. God cares about messy people. Because God cares about sinners. God cares about sinners. And sinners are messy. So Jesus spends time with a woman who, maybe she was immoral. I have more of a sense that maybe this woman had been taken advantage of repeatedly. But the point is, is that, you know, there was nothing extraordinary about this person. She wasn't like Nicodemus, who Jesus talked to in the earlier chapter. He was important. This person wasn't important. This person wasn't important to anybody that we know of. She certainly wasn't important to all of her former husbands. She was a nobody, a plain old nobody. And yet Jesus takes the time to talk to a nobody about living water, about the gift of God that God wanted to give this nobody. Not only, and let me emphasize this, not only does God care about ordinary people, little people, God, I believe, takes a special pleasure in revealing himself to little people. And I can show you a Bible verse on that for all you theologians out there. Look at Matthew chapter 11. We're going to come back here in a moment. Look at Matthew 11. 
In Matthew 11, Jesus um, is eulogizing John the Baptist, praising John the Baptist, if you will, basically affirming John's calling as a prophet and the forerunner to the Messiah. And then he rebukes, um, in verse 20 it says, he begins to rebuke the cities, we're in 11.20 of Matthew, in which Moses' mighty works have been done because they did not repent. So John prepared, Jesus came and preached to them, yet they refused to repent. So Jesus begins to, to denounce, or should I say reprove them, rebuke them for their unbelief. But then notice this, after, after that, and after saying in 24, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because they had more light. He says, at this time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. I thank you that you have hidden the gospel from the wise and prudent, from the important people, from the in people, and you've revealed it to babes, the insignificant, the little people. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that the wise of this world were the ones who rejected Christ. 118, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the age? Where is the rock star? Where is the the Hollywood starlet? Where is the wealthy businessman? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And then he goes on in verse 26 and he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, Not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God chooses the foolish things, the woman at the well. The despised things, the woman at the well. The things that are not. She was a nobody. It's as if she didn't even exist. And yet God set his affection upon her. So this woman is a, is a type, if you will, of of all the ordinary people that we will see today, tomorrow, the next day. All the weak people. All the the people that no one will miss if they were gone. And there's a lot of those people out there. 
Secondly, Jesus, let's talk a moment about Jesus and how he deals with this woman. I, there's so many lessons here, but let me just mention a few before our time is up. The first is this, is that Jesus took the initiative in the situation. Jesus, Jesus is the one that began the conversation. It said in verse, John 4, 7, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Jesus talked to her first. He initiated. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to evangelism, I wish that everybody was like the Philippian jailer. Run to me, get on their knees. What must I do to be saved? But it's not usually like that, is it? No. You have to initiate. Why? Because people generally are spiritually careless. They're spiritually numb. They're immersed and engrossed in in the things of this world, and they're not thinking. Now, as I've shared many times recently, I believe God is drawing men and women through the work of his spirit, and sometimes God is working, but, but they, don't, they don't talk about it unless you initiate a conversation. Uh, J.C. Ryle said this. He says, uh, he says, Our Lord's conduct in this place should be carefully remembered by all who want to do good to the thoughtless and spiritually ignorant. It is vain to expect that such persons will voluntarily come to us and begin to seek knowledge. We must begin with them and go down to them in the spirit of courteous and friendly aggression. And I love that phrase. Courteous and friendly aggression. You'd never put those words, I would never put those words together, right? Would you get his point? Maybe I would use the word initiative. Courteous and friendly aggression. It is vain to expect that such persons will be prepared for our instruction. It will at once see and acknowledge the wisdom of all we are doing. We must go to work wisely. We must study the best avenues to their hearts and the most likely ways of arresting their attention. There is a handle to every mind. There is a handle to every mind. And our chief aim must be to get a hold of it. Now, it's striking that Jesus first takes initiative, right? He didn't wait for her. But secondly, what, what does he say? He says, I want to drink a water. Now, he, you know, he's tired, he's thirsty. But Jesus knew what he was about, right? He knew what he was doing. So, the woman's at the well. What do you think's on her mind? Water, right? So Jesus not only initiates, but he initiates in such a way that the conversation, that the thing on her, he addresses the thing that's on her mind. And then turns that thing, water, into a discussion about spiritual things. He takes the mundane thing, and the mundane thing becomes an opportunity, a doorway, to discuss the spiritual thing. Now, I want to give you a little assignment, okay? You ready? Yeah. Think about where you spend time. Think about the gym. Think about gymnastics. And think about how gymnastics is like the gospel. Think about basketball. And think about how basketball is like the gospel. How oh, baseball season's coming up. <clears throat> think about the ball field. Think about baseball. How is that like the gospel? Think about your work. How, how are computers 
like the gospel? Is a new birth like a new operating system? <clears throat> I'm completely serious. I am completely serious. Because we have to talk the language people are talking. Okay? Think about your work. Uh, we have architects here. How is building a building like God building the kingdom? How, is the go how do you share the gospel in the context of buildings? How do you share the go gospel in the context of physics? How do you share the gospel in the context of, of sales or economics? You, you, you have to think about where people's minds are at. And when they're at the gym, they're thinking about what's going on at the gym. At the ball field, what's going on at the ball field? At work, what's going on at work? So Jesus gives us a perfect pattern of, of how to how to witness here that is to speak to people where they're at and what's on their mind and then turn that conversation toward the gospel also Jesus this is very important Jesus focuses on the heart he focuses on the heart now as we read this passage earlier I heard at different points people chuckling because it's really funny when you realize what's going on okay this conversation is kind of funny so Jesus points out to the lady, yeah, I'm well aware of your past. And she's like, whoa, this dude's a prophet, right? He knows about me, but he doesn't know me, but he knows about me, right? That's, that's scary. And so what does she do? She begins immediately to have a conversation about the Samaritan-Jewish rivalry and, and the place to worship. Jesus didn't bring that up. She brought it up. Now, this could be she sincerely, oh, I got a prophet here. I want to get his opinion. It could have been that. Or it could have been rabbit trail. Okay, she could have been, oh, well, clearly Jesus is focusing on me and my sins, and I want to turn the conversation over here. Right? Could have been that. We don't know for sure because we don't know her heart like Jesus did. But what we do know, whether intentional or not, it was still a rabbit trail because it didn't matter to Jesus whether people worship in that place or that place. Why? Because he says the Father is seeking people to worship in spirit and truth. 24, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. To worship in spirit and truth is, is, to, is to worship not only doctrinally correctly, but to worship sincerely, or as we say, from the heart. It has to be real and not just formal, right? So Jesus, she moves the discussion to to a theological dispute, Jesus brings the conversation so, so tactfully right back to the focus of the heart. He didn't, I mean, he said, I, you know, salvation's of the Jews, but then he brought it right back. Not just where do you worship, but is your worship true worship? Is it genuine worship? And this is the issue in evangelism. The issue is not winning an argument. The issue is winning a soul. That's the issue. And, and, and when you converse with people about the Lord, as you, as you attempt to share Christ with people, you'll be amazed at the rabbit trails that will come up. You will be asked about evolution. You'll be asked about the Crusades. You will be asked about the Inquisition. You'll be asked about gay rights. You'll be asked about, I mean, go down the list. Things will just pop into people's heads and they'll just blurt them out. What about this? What about that? What about um, and you have to learn to deftly turn the focus back to the gospel and back to 
the person and their relationship or lack thereof with God. I remember witnessing one time this guy. He's like, well, if you're, if you're, wait a minute, you're saying Jesus is the only way, then what about all those people in Africa? I'm like, man, that is such a good point. Why don't you receive Jesus now, and then we can send you to Africa? <laughs> I did. I said that to him. That's the logical answer. I mean, don't act like you care about people in Africa not having the gospel when you're not even receiving the gospel, right? Great, man. Receive the gospel. Take them to the people in Africa. Let's go. He was stunned. Didn't know what to say. I mean, there are, there are ways, if you, if you are thoughtful, to, to... Well, bottom line, don't chase the rabbit. Speaking of which, last night, there was a rabbit outside my front window, and my daughter's dog was just like, <laughs> wanted to get it. So I opened the door real fast to see if the dog would get it. <laughs> it's like a man would be awesome to bring that thing back in her drawers. <laughs> um, but it was amazing how that, you ever watch a rabbit run? They don't run in a straight line. Bing, 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 bing. I mean, it's like everywhere. That's a rabbit trail. And that's where we get the expression. So you talk to someone about Jesus. Crusades, Inquisition, Evolution, LBG. Bring it back to Jesus and the simplicity of the gospel. God is calling you. God is offering you eternal life. God wants you to enter into a relationship with him. Bring it back. And then you say, you know, those are great questions, and you'll get answers to those eventually. But they're not the main thing. Not the main thing. The last thing I want to point out about Jesus is his passion here. The disciples were concerned about him. And they say to him, oh, Lord, you need to eat. And he says in 32, I have food to eat of which you do not know. 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he kept the main thing the main thing. The main thing the main thing. A church can do a lot of important things, but if they're not reaching the lost, they're not doing the main thing. The Great Commission begins with the word go. And you can't disciple people that aren't saved. Right? You have to go. You have to bring them to Christ, and then you baptize them, and then you disciple them. But to do that, you have to go. Jesus kept the main thing the main thing. He stayed focused on what was important, and he was passionate for that, so passionate that he was willing to give up food, give up his time, willing to witness one tired and weary, because it was the main thing. He even says in this text to the woman, the father is seeking the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, lastly, we have the, the, the woman, we have Jesus, and then we have the disciples, right? The, these are the main characters in the play. You know, I don't know what to say about the disciples. 
I, I, I don't like to be critical of them because if I was there, I probably would have done the same thing. But I, we just have to admit it. They were clueless. It's clear they were prejudiced. What are you doing talking to this woman? We even know this because even in the book of Acts, we still see Peter who didn't want to preach to Gentiles. And this is after he had received the Holy Spirit. Okay? I mean, prejudice dies hard. And we have prejudices. And when you see somebody and they're gothed out and tatted up and they got rings coming out of, attached to every limb and thing on their body, you say things in your head. As I was meditating on the scripture this week, I was, as I was out and about town, I would watch people. I just looked at people. A guy riding his bike, a teenager walking, you know, listening to his jams on his iPhone and somebody jogging. Ordinary people, just plain old people. And it was so easy to look at them. And I, I evaluated my evaluation of them. No, I did. Because as I looked at this text, the, one of the questions is, what, what do I see when I look at people? The, the, the disciples saw a, a Samaritan woman who really wasn't worth their time a day. She was a nobody. As a matter of fact, now she was a nobody. She was on the bad side of the tracks. But she was important to Jesus. The disciples didn't get that. They were prejudiced and they were carnal. And what I mean by carnal... Carnal, I mean it in the literal sense, and that means they were simply earthbound. They were consumed with getting food. Jesus was consumed with reaching a soul. They were worried about the, the uh, mundane things of life. They were focused on the everyday acts of life. And not realizing the opportunity that was right before them. They didn't even understand why Jesus was even talking to the woman. It never dawned on them. Maybe he's sharing the gospel with them. No, they were just hungry. We can be so focused on the everyday acts of life that we miss opportunities to share Christ. That is why Jesus says here in verse 35, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. And the, 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 the picture of the downward glance is the earthly glance and the earthly focus. Lift up your eyes and get a heavenly focus, a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective. The harvest is all around. We must not let the cares of this age blind us to the harvest that is all around us. Listen, I will conclude, I promise, any given situation can be either a distraction or an opportunity. Let me say it again, it's real important. Any given situation can be either a distraction or an opportunity. And it depends on our perspective. The same situation was to Jesus an opportunity and was to them a distraction. 
The difference wasn't the situation. It was their perspective. Their downward glance versus Jesus' upward glance. Do we need to pray for opportunities or take the opportunities? In conclusion, opportunities are all around us. Secondly, weakness is not an obstacle. As a matter of fact, it may be the open door. Thirdly, God cares for ordinary people, and not only that, God cares for despised people. Lastly, set your mind on heavenly things, on eternal things, on the value of the soul. And this will move you to share the gospel with others. Let's stand, and as we, as we close, I wanted to make sure that if anyone here doesn't know the gospel, that you, I at least give you a very simple outline. Because we've talked, we've used words today like the gospel and eternal life and this and that. And you're like, well, I'm not sure I understand this. The Bible tells us this, that all of us, every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And I'll be the first one to admit I'm a sinner. I'll be the first one to admit that I'm probably worse than you. Okay? But the scripture says that Christ died for sinners, not for the righteous. He even says, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. Right? So, our sin creates an obstacle between us and God. We cannot get to God even if we wanted to. The problem is we really don't want to. The main obstacle is we don't want to because our hearts are spiritually separated. Our hearts are spiritually dead. And so God has to intervene in our life. God has to give us the ability to understand the gospel, understand his love for us. And in spite of our sin, Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose from the dead. As a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter. Right? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You say, well, I don't understand what's the cross got to do with, you know, what's the death got to do with my sin? Our sins are an obstacle to God that must be remedied. The thing about God is, although he loves us uh, Infinitely, he is also infinitely just. And today we think love means just ignoring things. Love means sweeping things under the carpet. Can you imagine what the, what it look, would look like under the cosmic carpet if God just? I mean, do you realize a pile of dirt that'd be under that carpet? Maybe that's a black holes are God sweeping out. No, God doesn't sweep it under the carpet because that's not justice. And we think of it as, as love and kindness, but, but it's not. So God's love is displayed in dealing with the real problem. The way to remedy our sin is not to try to be better. 
This is what I was taught when I was young. If you try to be better, and if you go to church and take sacraments and do things, well, that will kind of balance out your bad deeds. So you, have your, your, you do bad things here, you do church things here, you know, and hopefully when you die, it's tipped this way. If not, you're in trouble. <laughs> That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't your, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. The gospel is that Christ's perfect deeds eliminate all your bad deeds. Because when Christ dies on the cross, he dies for the sinner. And when he dies for you, your debt, your obligation to fulfill the law, as well as the penalty you deserve for not fulfilling the law, that is removed completely. Completely. I mean completely. Not a little bit. Not partly. Not until you sin again. That's not how it works. That's why the Bible speaks of things like justification, which is the big word for just if I'd never sin. You're justified. God has removed your sin. He's removed the guilt of your sin. He's removed the necessity for you to pay for your sin because Jesus Christ paid for it, satisfying God's justice. Sin must be punished. The question is, who's, gonna, who's going to be punished for it, you or someone who stands in your place? Jesus voluntarily, being God and man, the infinite person, voluntarily took the sinner's place. And through faith in him, his death, burial, resurrection, his perfect righteousness is then given to you. In the Bible word is imputed or reckoned to you. It's as if I got my phone out and I said, Transfer to your account, $10 million. You pick up your phone, open the app, there's the money. The perfect righteousness of Jesus is transferred to your account when you believe in him. But you have to believe in him. You have to have true faith. Not just an intellectual faith, a true faith. A true faith means you talk to Jesus. You trust Jesus. You ask Jesus to save you. You acknowledge your need for a Savior. Maybe that's the hardest step. You know, maybe that's the hardest part, acknowledging that we really need, well, maybe I can do something. Well, no, you can't. As my old pastor friend used to say, God doesn't need us to drape our rags of righteousness, as Isaiah calls them, calls them over the cross of Jesus. Jesus is a complete Savior, a perfect Savior. He saves, you get saved. He rescues, you get rescued. He does it all, and you receive it by faith. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for um, your example here of your concern for the, the little people the normal person, the everyday person, even the broken person. We thank you, Lord, that that's your, your heart. We just see your heart here so much that you, even though tired and weary, even though hungry and not, not having food, you, you focus your attention on the need of the one around you. I thank you that that is your heart even now and even this morning. 
And Jesus, that there may be some here that don't know you. And we ask, Lord, that they would understand today your great love for them. Lord, they would understand today that when you died on that cross, it was for their sins. You love them that much, not just to take time for them, but to literally give your life for them. And we thank you, Lord, that your resurrection has shown us that you defeated sin and death. And that if we just come to you in simple childlike faith, you will give us the living water, eternal life in yourself. So I ask, Lord, that that if any here don't know you, that even now, at this very moment, there's no need to delay. At this very moment, they would open their heart to you. Say, yes, Christ, I know that I've sinned. I do need a Savior. And I understand today you, you took care of my sin. Yes, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. And he will save you. And he will give you living water. We pray all this, Lord, in your name and for your glory alone. Amen.